Well, it is such a joy to be with all of you here today at New Hope Church. And uh, for those of you who are joining us online, welcome to New Hope Church right here in the Minneapolis area. My name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it, it just means so much that we can connect with you wherever you find yourself today. And then to be present with you here that are gathered, this is such a joy. And what a beautiful day God's given us, right? It's, it's going to be warm out today, but never fear. By this time next week, we're going to have 17 more inches of snow. What do you think of that, right? I mean, hey, this is what we do, I guess, right? This is what we do. Uh, I am thrilled to connect with you guys. And, you know, this has been uh, a, a festive week in our country. You know, last Sunday was the Super Bowl. How many, how many watched the Super Bowl, right? So quite a number of us did. Uh, yes, I see some hands. Those are the Chiefs fans up there. Uh, so, so here, you know, uh, a lot of us watch the Super Bowl not because of the Super Bowl itself, but because of what? Food commercials. Because, well, food, yes, but I, somebody said commercials, and that's exactly right. And when you watch the Super Bowl, you watch the commercials, part of what happens is you experience, now, now hear me here, you experience those things that are all the rage out there right now right? All the rage right now. Like, like for example, there's J-Lo and Ben, Ben Affleck, right? They're all the rage apparently. Dunkin' Donuts. That's, I mean, you saw the commercial, I'm sure. Actually, I think it's one of the better commercials. Frankly, I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, electric pickup trucks. That's all the rage right now. I'm not sure how you make an electric pickup truck do its thing, but supposedly it works. And that is, I mean, there was a lot of noise about that in the commercials. Uh, you, had, um, you had Doritos, and then there's the M&Ms, and, and, and the whole drama with the M&Ms, all the rage right now. Uh, and then the Kansas City Chiefs themselves, all the rage. I mean, my goodness, you know the whole nation was rooting for the Chiefs. I mean, the people that love Jesus were rooting for the Chiefs. It's really, it's really great. And they won, so that's, and they won in a dramatic fashion. That was kind of fun. I mean, it made for a fun Super Bowl, right? All the rage. So much fun. And, and we can go on and on. I'm sure you can share some things as well that meant something to you and whatnot. Do you know what else is all the rage right now? Now, here's the thing. See, this is a tough moment for me because just a moment ago, we're a little bit light and, and we're, we're chuckling at these things that are just so accessible to us. But there's something else that's all the rage right now. In order to recognize that, we have to put on our sad face for a minute. In order to recognize this other thing that's all the rage, we have to just kind of catch our breath because it's, it's, it doesn't have the lightheartedness that, that J-Lo and Ben Affleck have, right, or, or M&Ms. The other thing that's all the rage right now, here's the sad face, right? Everybody do this right now. It's okay, sad face. The other thing that's all the rage right now is rage. It's rage itself, Right? And we saw this in the commercial. Did you see the commercial, the He Gets Us commercial there somewhere in the middle of the Super Bowl evening? Where, where you have, and it's a sketch where you have uh, all this anger and all this division. And truly, it is a testimony to the culture in which you and I live right now. Where everybody's yelling at each other. Everybody's yelling past each other. And this is, this is uh, an indictment on our society, right? And, and, but the beautiful thing, and, and by the way, it's regarding politics, it's about a religion, it's about morality, it's about culture. I mean, you just fill in the blanks. The beautiful thing is, if you watch the commercial, it culminates with 
The recognition that Jesus Christ, what did it say? Anybody remember? Jesus loves enemies. Jesus loves enemies. Now this is a gospel clarity moment right here. Speaking about the person of our Savior and what he values and what he lives by. He loves enemies. And it is... It is telling for you and me to receive that. Now, I, by the way, I love those commercials. I think they're great. Uh, I appreciate what is being done with those commercials. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the effort is to, to have um, uh, uh, phone numbers, websites, and so forth. People respond to, to this, he gets us, and it channels into gospel preaching evangelical churches all across America that are having conversations with people that are just peaked, whose interest is peaked by these, these commercials, these stories, these He Gets Us commercials. So uh, I think they're worthwhile. I think they're worthwhile. Now listen to me. This issue of Jesus loving enemies, this issue of Jesus transcending the anger, the hate, the discord, stepping into it and then transcending it, hear me, it speaks to the very heart of our great God. Right? It says something about what he values, what he treasures. And you know, he's got a question for you and me about this. A question that exposes all the more his heart. And that's what we're about this particular stretch here at New Hope Church. We're, we're answering, or we're wrestling rather, with questions God asks. And we're looking at a series of questions in the Bible. We've already seen a couple. We've got several more to go. And we're going to see one today. And, and I want you to hear me now. This is a word from God for you and me. And it is timely, and it is convicting, and it is necessary for us. What we're going to hear today all right, this question that we're going to wrestle with is so necessary for us. Now, the question for today is found in the Old Testament prophetic book called Jonah. Jonah. It's kind of on the backside of our Old Testaments. If you're looking through a, a, you know, a hard copy of your Bible, if you have it uh, digitally there, you just scroll down through the list. About two-thirds of the way down, you'll come to Jonah. And you'll notice it has four chapters. It's actually a rather small book. You can read it in about 20 minutes, and I would encourage you sometime today to do that. It would be worthwhile for you. It's a powerful, gripping, and yet punchy, succinct story, this book of Jonah. I will let you read it, so I won't go into all the details, but suffice to say, God calls this Jewish man, this Hebrew Israelite man. He's a prophet of all things. And God calls him, raises him up, calls him to go to a great city called Nineveh. And when he steps into the gates of Nineveh, what Jonah is supposed to do is proclaim that judgment is coming from the Most High God. And in proclaiming that, rally the people to repentance. This is the goal that God has, and he's called Jonah to do this. But guess what? Jonah doesn't want to do this. And again, you can read the details, but the reality is Jonah's initial response is, I'm not doing that. And he goes in the furthest opposite direction he can go. He has no desire to go to the Ninevites. He does not want to go there. Why? 
He doesn't like them. They are, let's just be fair, they are a fierce, brutal, militant people. They are the superpower of the moment, and they are terrifying. And you know what else they are? Hear me, this is so important for context. Religiously, politically, morally, culturally, they are the complete opposite of where Jonah is and where the Israelite people are. They are the antithesis of Jonah's worldview. In his mind, they are scoundrels who do not merit any of his attention. They are the other that he wants to stay away from. And so when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going. Not me, not me. Well, God wins, right? I mean, just, let's just acknowledge, God, God gets his way. And so what God has done with Jonah, well, ultimately, ultimately Jonah gives in, Jonah goes. And Jonah goes into those gates, and he proclaims judgment is coming, and the people are rallied to repentance. It is remarkable what happens in Nineveh. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people Repent of their sins and call on the one true God for mercy. It is incredible what unfolds. So much so, even the king of Nineveh, he gets off of his throne and proclaims repentance. Uh, History tells us that that king is a man named Asher Dan III. He's not mentioned here in the biblical text, but other histories reveal the list of kings of Nineveh and the time frame. Asher Dan III. Actually, uh, among the personalities of the Bible that are some of my favorite, he is one of them even though his name isn't mentioned. Why is he one of them? Well, you don't need to uh, turn there necessarily, but listen to these words from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we find this. Word of, of what Jonah was doing And the people's response reached the king of Nineveh. And he rose. Notice this. He rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then the next verse, verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. They repented. Thousands called on the name of the Lord. The king humbled himself and invited his nobles and all the people to turn to the Most High God, and they did. They did. It's a revival of sorts. How many of you have been keeping up with the revival in Asbury, Kentucky right now? You've been paying attention to this? This is an incredible thing. 
It is a marvelous thing. I'm so excited about what can be a meaningful work of God that is spreading to other uh, schools and churches and so forth. And you know what? We need to just be praying that God will just continue to spread that wildfire right here into our own community. And here's the thing, though. You and I might be tempted to go, oh, yes, we need to have revival here in the community. We need that person to be revived. And that person needs to experience revival. And those folks over there, well and good. Well and good. But the opportunity for you and me is to stand in front of our very own mirrors and with a heart of repentance say, and God, revive me. Revive me, right? Do you believe that? We need to start. We need to be the ones. Let the revival start right here in our own hearts. And let, let God's spirit do a wonder work in our own lives. That ought to be our petition first and foremost. Well, there was a work of God going on in Nineveh. It was incredible. But according to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah didn't like it. Look with me there. You'll see it also in front of you. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, in the Hebrew language, that phrase has the idea, listen to me here, that he was hot inside. I want you to imagine a pot boiling water or oil is boiling over it's 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 animated it's it's aggravated it's 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 coming out of the top this is what the language is trying to describe is Jonah's uh, inner person at this moment in time he is about to explode Krista and I have one of those instant pots anybody have an instant pot at home all right, yeah, a few of you, you cook soups and ribs and all that stuff in. It's really good. Uh, here's the thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a new style pressure cooker. And you put the stuff inside and you close the lid tight and you let the, the, the pressure build. And, and then uh, when, it's, when it's done, you've got to be sure to release the pressure, the little valve, so that the steam comes out. You can't open the lid first or it will explode. And that's where Jonah is. You open his lid, he's going to explode. He has had it. Why? Why is he so angry? Because those people, hear me, those people are experiencing God's mercy and by golly, they don't deserve it. That's why he's angry. Because those people, they are the other in Jonah's life. They are the ones that offend Jonah by their very existence. Because culturally, politically, economically, militarily, Philosophically, morally, religiously, they aren't like him. They are a threat to everything he values. And you know, yes, they are broken and they are problematic. They are challenging at times. There's no question about it. But the idea that God would give them mercy, anathema to Jonah. He simply cannot accept that and we see this we see this in the next couple of verses you may remember last weekend when we were together we talked about being stuck 
There was Moses stuck between uh, the Red Sea and Pharaoh's approaching army. And God wanted him, step out, just don't stand there, go. Well, here, well, and we said that when we're stuck, sometimes what we do, our default is to blame. Remember this? I, I know some of you do, because some of us talked about it here this past week. We blame others. Well, this is exactly what Jonah's getting ready to do here. Look with me in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 4, 2 and 3. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now, time out a minute. I have to give Jonah some credit for something. He is messy. He's kind of ugly right here, but he's being brutally honest. He's telling God exactly where he's at. That's a good thing. He is saying, God, here's who I am. Here's where I'm at. It doesn't look very pretty right now, but I am calling out to you. He's praying to God. He's laying it out there. Sometimes our prayers might be ugly and brutal and unkind. And you know what? God can handle it. And that's exactly what's going on here with Jonah and God. Jonah prayed to the Lord. And notice what he said. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, Israel? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which if you read chapter 1, it tells this story. God calls him, wants to go to Nineveh. He's like, no way, Jose. So he gets on a boat and goes to the opposite direction towards Spain, to a land called Tarshish. For I knew, notice this, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Really? That's how angry he is that God has been merciful to these people. I'd rather die than see them experience this. Friends, any of you ever that angry about anything? Now process that a minute. Are you ever that angry? And maybe it's even a righteous indignation that's just gotten the best of you. And there are plenty of things for which to be righteously indignant. Racism, sexism, war, abuse. And a whole host of other things that we don't have time to, to name. You can fill in the blanks. There's no end of things to be righteously angry about. But in that, take my life, I'm so angry. Well, then it really speaks to if righteous indignation is appropriate at times, it wouldn't likely lead to a desire to die because you feel so bad about what's unfolding. But if unrighteous indignation is unfolding and it becomes about you and your comforts and your expectations, then just maybe you'd want to check out if those things aren't being met. Do you hear me, church? And this is, this is where Jonah's at. And then comes, hear me, then comes the question. Verse 4, Jonah chapter 4, verse 4. Here's the question God says. And you'll see it there in front of you as well. Do you do well? Do you do well to be angry? Do, do you do well to be angry? I want to invite you to weigh every one of those words very carefully. 
Do you do well? Do you do well when you're angry? Do you do well to be angry? You know, maybe if it's for the just cause. But what if it's eating you up so badly that you want to die? Maybe something else is going on. Something that's not what God would desire for you. And this is, this is where Jonah is at. And this is the question that he asks. And I ask you, I want to ask you, do you do well to be angry? Just think about that. What are the things that make you angry? What are the things that strip you from any sense of peaceableness? And you may say, okay, pastor, that's well and good. So here are the just and true things. And as I said a moment ago, we can all find those. But ask yourself the honest question. Over here, are these things that make you angry really about your own comforts and expectations, preferences, anticipations, and the ways in which those things aren't quite met? Like in Jonah's case, those people, I don't like them, and you're merciful to them. How dare you? A scholar, Joyce Baldwin, preeminent Old Testament scholar, he says this, you'll, you'll see it there if you're online or right here, you'll see it in front of you on the screen. He offers this, he says, he says, Jonah sees the deferment of judgment on Nineveh, notice this, as a weakness on God's part. Mercy to those people is a weakness in Jonah's eyes. And you know, so often that's where our society is now. We are so filled with rage. Rage is all the rage. Yelling at each other, yelling over each other is so the norm now that when we see any departure from the rage, we see it as a weakness. And that's what Jonah's thinking on God here. We see it as a weakness. He sees it as a weakness on God's part and disapproves sharing the Lord's compassion with the unlovely. How dare he do that? Those people don't deserve that. I'm reminded of the Jericho Road. This is from the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10 regarding the Good Samaritan. Very famous story. Some of you I know have heard it. Others of you may not be sure. But maybe as I share briefly a couple of the details, you'll start to recognize it. So, the Jericho Road goes from Jerusalem up over the Mount of Olives and then down into what's the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Rift, to the ancient city of Palms known as Jericho, one of the most ancient cities in the world. This is a well-traveled highway. But understand with me, it's also a dangerous highway. There are no end of bandits that, that uh, hang out along the rocks and wait for vulnerable passers-by. And according to the story that Jesus tells, for the purpose of making a particular point to a crowd, a traveler is going down the road to Jericho. He's on business, perhaps. As he's on his way, suddenly some bandits come from out from behind the rocks, and they assault the men. And they beat him up. And they take his things. And they leave him for dead there on the road. 
After a while, a religious man comes by. He's maybe a pastor, a priest, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's a leader, a, a ministry leader. And he comes by and he sees the, the poor man dying there on the road. And he walks by, he kind of goes out of his way to avoid him and then moves on. A little while later, another religious man comes by. This time, he's a, he's a seminary professor, a teacher, an academic ministry person, knows the Bible inside and out, and he stumbles upon the guy, and he, he gets out of his way and tries to avoid him and then moves on. And then eventually, a Samaritan man, oh my word, heaven forbid, the Samaritans are hated by the Jews. And to be fair, the Jews are hated by the Samaritans. These are cousins, if you will, that just don't like each other. But in the story, the Samaritan comes and he sees the man and he stops and he gets down on his, on his hands and knees and he starts to care for the man and he's pulling oil off of his donkey and pouring it under the wounds and covering him up and bandaging him. And he picks the man up and places him on his donkey and finds the nearest hotel and pays for the man's survival. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And in the story, Jesus elevates the Samaritan of all people as the ultimate neighbor, the prototype of true neighborliness, a true neighborliness and compassion and mercy. And of course, there are the others. And the others are on a spectrum, as I like to think. And actually, so is the Samaritan. So on one end of the spectrum, listen to me here, please, on one end of the spectrum, you have mercy and compassion and love. And then you go further up the spectrum, and we come to this awkward tone, this awkward moment of indifference. And this is what the, the religious leaders offered. They, they, were, they, were, they just were indifferent to the man. They didn't want to be bothered. They didn't want to be pestered. They didn't want to be tainted. If they had stopped and taken care of the man, then, oh, you know, I mean, it's not insurmountable, but now they're ceremonially unclean. That would have disrupted their schedule, their rhythms. They're going to have to go through all these ritual bathing and all this stuff. It's just not worth the hassle. They're too important. And so they moved on. They're just indifferent to his plight. And then you go further up the spectrum, and the robbers, they're willing for the man to be destroyed. They beat him up and leave him for dead. Years ago, like 20 years ago or so, I was part of a church that was engaging one of the poorest communities in North Texas. And we were putting a lot of energy into this community. And uh, it was a community that was extremely diverse, very uh, impoverished. And I'll, I'll never forget one night at a meeting, one of our leaders uh, got up to the microphone and he slams his fist on the lectern and he roars it in the microphone and he says, I just want that whole community to burn to the ground. Do you not know, pastor, what they're doing to our property values? Destruction. Destroy it. Get it out of the way. It's the attitude of the robbers. I want to take and then I want them gone. I want to take and I want him dead. I'm going to leave him for dead. And then, and then actually, at that same time, the, the, there was another voice or two that, that, that stand up and say, yeah, and how, I mean, it's fine what we're doing, but how much is it costing us? It's like, really? 
So there's a, in that case, there's an expression of the indifference. I, we don't want to be bothered. I mean, is it going to cost us something? And we, we are so easily defined by indifference and, or even destruction and not the mercy part. And here's why. And this is so important for you and me to process. I have to deal with this regularly in my own world, in my own thinking. Here, here's why we are so easily defined by the indifference part or the destruction part of the spectrum. Listen to me now. Because when it is said and done, when we see people that aren't like us and who are so not even just not like us but are the antithesis of everything that we value, we have this innate desire for them to be punished. And my indifference and or a destructive mentality is somehow geared to put them in their place or to keep them at bay. And they make me angry because they exist and I'm bothered by it. And so I try to live in such a way, I think righteously, I think justly, so as to contain them, put them in their place. And then if God is merciful to them, that foils my entire plan. And so my anger goes to another level because as if they're not bad enough, now God's up there being compassionate. And that's not part of my planning here, God. And that's where Jonah is. Is it where you are? With, with people who don't share your political brand. With people that don't share your economic worldview. With people that don't follow your moral compass. With people that don't look like you. Or maybe they have a cultural context that is so utterly foreign to you that it's, it's almost threatening. Now these are the questions that real disciples have to wrestle with. And Jonah and his story force us to have to reckon with this stuff. And that's why God says, do, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? But you know, that's not the only question God asks Jonah. In, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, we see another question. Notice it with me. God says to Jonah, should not I pity or have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also a bunch of cattle? Wait a minute. What's the cattle got to do with anything? That seems strange. God is talking about these people don't know their right hand from their left hand. I'm compassionate for all these people and their cattle. The cows, the steers. But listen to me, friends. This little detail, as strange as it may seem, is key to the entire thing, to the whole story. We see this reference to cattle also uh, elsewhere in Jonah. In fact, I read it here just a bit ago in Jonah chapter 3, when the king gets off the throne and he says, sackcloth and ashes on, on, on all the beasts. 
Nobody should eat or drink, even the beast. That word for beast there in Jonah 3 that I read earlier is the exact same word that we see here in verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4. Beast, livestock, cattle, they're synonymous. It's the same word in the Hebrew language. And you know where we see it the very first time ever. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And here's what we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And friends, this is so important. It, is, it, it shapes everything in this entire story. And it gets to the heart of God's question. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock that's that word, cattle, beasts, livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, this passage is not inherently a passage about the cattle and the birds and the fish. It's a passage about giving humanity the image of God. God is going to grant this unique, eternal dignity to the crown jewel of his creation, which is a woman and a man, a human. And as image bearers, their task is to have authority or dominion over the whole created order. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the livestock or the beasts or the cattle are put forward as an example. And so it is when God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion over all these people and including the cattle? Jonah, a sophisticated, educated Jewish man and prophet, by the way, his mind ought to run instantly to Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Bible, the very first time that word cattle ever appears in the context of cattle are cared for by people created in the image of God. And if they are created in the image of God, they have a special place in God's heart and he loves them. And the fact that the cattle are mentioned isn't even about the cattle as much as it is about image bearers that God has a heart of compassion for. And so what God is saying to Jonah is this, dude, you're so angry. But these are my image bearers. And if you want proof, they're taking care of the cattle, which, by the way, is a very image-bearing thing to do. It only underscores they may be broken, they may be evil, they may be messed up, they may be ugly, but by golly, they're still my people. They're imaging my image. And I love them. And prophet Jonah, so should you. And New Hope Church, so should you. So should you. So should I. Those so-called others that we don't like, broken as they are, they bear his image. And so we need to love them and be merciful and compassionate and caring and have the perspective that as image bears, hear me now, the fact that they bear the image of God triumphs over their ethnicity, triumphs over their politics, triumphs over their morality, triumphs over their religiosity. They're image bearers. 
And we may have hard conversations and wrestle over convictions, but we need to love them and not just be raging at them, either directly or in the comforts of our own homes in front of our favorite cable news or in our churches or at our dining tables. I close with my eyes on two hills, two hills. According to Jonah, chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah went east of Nineveh and got up on a hill and he sat there. And if you read it, you figure out he's pouting, he's petulant, he's a crybaby, he's whining. Because God was merciful and he's angry about it. He's boiling within. He's raging. He's looking at those people and he's angry that they have repented and received God's help. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be, God. We're supposed to put them in their place, God. My eyes go to another hill also on the east side of a major city. But instead of Nineveh, that major city is Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives. And instead of the prophet Jonah, it's another prophet named Jesus. And according to Luke chapter 19, he's looking westward out over Jerusalem. And unlike his brother Jonah from centuries earlier, he's not complaining, whining, hand-reading, petulant, or bothered by the fact that they exist. According to Luke 19, he's weeping. He's crying because he sees them in their brokenness and he is so moved with compassion. God asked some questions here in Jonah chapter 4. Well, I have a question for you and for me. Do we rage like Jonah? Or do we weep like Jesus? When we sit on our proverbial hills and look out over the people. Do we rage like Jonah or do we weep with compassion like our Lord and Savior whose death and resurrection makes it so that sin, death, the devil, all the walls we erect and unchecked rage no longer have the final word. Church, an opportunity for you and me today an opportunity we have is to make the love and compassion of Jesus all the rage. Heavenly Father, would you please help us to be those people that sit not on the hill of condemnation and rage and pity feeling sorry for ourselves because our own comforts 
and expectations and preferences are affronted by your mercy. Oh, may we sit on the hill of compassion and love. The hill that leads to a cross and an empty tomb. Oh, Lord God, may we surrender our anger. Would you forgive us for it? May we lay it down at your feet. And would you allow us to live and love and lead like this Jesus and have his compassionate spirit. And may we be mercy givers and peaceable citizens, image bearers marked by love and not hate and rage. May we make Jesus known far and wide. May we make him and his love to be all the rage, as it were. And all God's people said, amen. So right now, I'd like to invite here for just a couple minutes my friend, Pastor David Miles, and his dear wife, Tammy, to come up here to the platform. You know that these recent weeks, these past two or three weeks here at New Hope Church, we've had a reduction of staff. And in this, Pastor David's position is one of those that has uh, been moved away from our staff. And I want you to hear that the few that are impacted like this are precious, and we love them, and we're caring for them as well as we can, and there's a lot of goodwill with them, and all of them matter. Their ministries matter. They have been faithful. They have done excellently. They have made a difference for Jesus and for all of us. We, we can't possibly, and nor do some of them even want to recognize all of them. And yet, uniquely, there are a couple, David being one, because of his presence here on the platform and within our church, part of our senior staff, a unique kind of profile that he has had, and he has had so well. I wanted to invite David and Tammy up here so we can just love them and bless them and pray over them. Right after we're done, down in room B is a reception for them that our life group ministry is hosting and would love for you to stop by there and talk with them. In fact, I would say to you, if you're willing, when we're done here, we need to let them get down there. And so if you'd make way for that so they can do that. But you need to know, I love this man very much and his bride and their family. Thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Make sure it's on. Oh. I don't know. Let's see here. There we go. Okay, I'm going to do something like as a pastor, going to be brief, okay? <laughs> um, first of all, thank you guys so very much. I just want to tell you how much of an honor it's been to be one of your pastors and shepherds at this church. And uh, me and my family just want to say how much we love you guys. Um, you know, as uh, the year was ending last year, Tammy and I had been praying and uh, really desiring not for our team to be impacted and just our, our, our life group team, but our entire team. And so at the beginning of the year, I um, came to Pastor Matthew, and I said, you know, Pastor Matthew, I said, sensing the Lord is saying that it's time for us. And, um, 
you know, still very much have a heart for multi-ethnic ministry, a call to preach and teach God's word, and uh, but that God is calling that it's it's time for us to go. And so I actually share that as well with our elders and then with our team and staff. And so um, I, I wasn't I had the opportunity, like I'm not being asked to leave. I just said, hey, you know, it, it's actual time and, and a desire to do this for our team. Not candidating any place, still doing some teaching at Northwestern, still doing the radio show on Mondays with that. One of the things I just wanted to say to you guys is that we have been so very deeply honored to serve as a pastor in love. I wanna take a moment to, and especially thank Tammy. Like you guys get to see me, but this is the real deal. And Jackson, Taylor, Jaden, and our son DJ, uh, these are the people who really made ministry th for my life to you guys possible. And um, and and that's that's my flagpole. You see the flag, but Tammy being rooted in Christ is what has allowed. Uh, me to serve and love you guys in this way. And so i um, super excited for what God has next. Don't fully know everything that it will be. Uh, my friend Andy Gray and his wife Laura here with Catalyst for Harmony. And Andy and I had an opportunity to lead our elders on a Sankofa trip this past fall that was really formative. But I look forward to doing some work with him as well and uh, some consulting and speaking but again, I just want to say thank you so very much for the honor and privilege of serving the Lord, being one of your shepherds. Thank you to Beth and Caitlin and the Life Group's team, our elders, the amazing facilitators in our church. Matthew, I love you very much. Thank you to the staff and to our elders. Guys, keep pressing into the gospel. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and making him known in the neighborhoods and the nations. And so I just want to commend you guys to that. I want to commend you to continue to press forward mightily and let God use your life and be on mission. Let God use your life. I'll say it lastly. I'm not standing in front of you because of pastor. I'm standing in front of you because a sophomore in high school, after I failed my suicide attempt named Lance Porter, invited me to something called Student Venture where I met Jesus Christ and it radically changed my life, and this gospel is so amazing. So you be the Lance Porters where you're at, and invite people around you to know Jesus. God bless you guys, I love you, amen. I love you. What I'd like to do as we dismiss here is to pray over David. And just a little while ago, uh, with a little Grayson and his mom and dad and brother, we, we raised our arms and blessed them. And, and I'd like to do the same thing right now with Pastor David and with Tammy. And so if you're comfortable, if you're willing, just put your arm forward as if it's right here on their shoulders. And let's just pray over them. Let's just bless them in Jesus. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for this man and his precious family, Tammy and the kids. We love them. And from the moment I first heard his voice in 2016 after a man named Philando Castile died right here in our cities to this very moment, Lord, this man has changed my life as a friend, as a colleague, as a pastor, as a brother. 
And together as a church family, we receive so much joy because of what we have gained from David's life and ministry. And we bless him. We are a better people. He has loved us and led us well and been so present as a shepherd in our midst. He has spoken your truth and pointed us to your son, Jesus, every breath he's taken. And we give you praise for him and we bless him and we bless Tammy. We pray over them and their family. And we ask that you would return to them all that they've given here. We pray that you would heal those places that are weary and wounded. We pray, God, that you would infuse so much delight and joy into their souls and that you would, uh, in such great uh, joy, uh, meet every need they have and let their tomorrow be far richer and brighter and fuller than these wonderful days that have passed. May they have no doubt you go before them and are their rear guard and underneath them are their everlasting arms. And may they, oh God, sense your smile because they will land one day on the shore of heaven and they will hear a resounding word, well done. And we celebrate that today. And we bless them, we commend them to you, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.